welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And the Mr. Zach Davis. (laughs) (laughs) Or as Uh, I mentioned, I'm going to start calling you Mr. Roden. Totally fine. Totally fine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it feels good to be back. Ontologically changed. Does that make my voice sound different? (laughs) You do sound kind of different. Yeah, I thought so, Try not to drop your ring while you're fiddling with it during recording. (laughs) Oh, dang it. Um, I do feel... The ring is getting... um, It's taking some getting used to. I fidget all the time with it. Yeah, it looks listeners, really great. if you are just joining us, uh, Zach got married. <laughs> oh, yeah, this maybe is your first episode. Um, I got married a couple weeks ago. Um, Jesuitical was there. It was a great, great time. Uh, but I took a couple weeks off, and I wish yeah. I could say it's good to be back, but it was it was really it was good to be gone. better to be in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I am, I'm, I'm ready to get back on the mic. I'm excited. Yeah. Yes. Good. We're glad. All right. So what are we drinking, Zach? So this week, we are drinking some uh, bullet bourbon. Um, we tried to find some... Uh, Different bourbon in Midtown Manhattan, but... Uh, that was requested by our guest. Yes. Uh, however, the Midtown markup made it what $180. Is, what oh is normally God. a $50 <laughs> bottle of bourbon. Uh, so yeah. we're drinking Bullet. Uh, Which is my personal favorite. Yes. So. I always love bourbon on the rocks. So yeah. cheers. Cheers. Welcome, thank, cheers. Welcome me back. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Well, welcome back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, I want you to say it more, you guys. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, and who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week, we're talking with Matt Sipman, who is an associate editor at Commonweal and a co-host of the podcast, Know Your Enemy, which I really enjoy this tagline, a leftist guide to the conservative movement. Yes. Uh, we wanted to talk to Matt because, uh, besides being a friend of mine, um, he's one of the smartest people I know who can talk intelligently about uh, politics in a way that is, I would say, fair and smart and he's got this great podcast that really, uh, it's Know Your Enemy, and it sounds very uh, harsh, maybe. I don't Divisive. know. Divisive. Divisive. Um, but it really is, like uh, I think, an honest, fair look at someone, a lot of people who he doesn't agree with, which is a spirit we've tried to develop on the show. Um, yeah. Looking at you, Ashley. Um, <laughs> and so we thought we could learn a few things from Matt. Yes. Um But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? Uh, You've probably already seen this. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, You were in Thailand. What do you know? That's true. (laughs) Uh, Former Vice President Joe Biden was denied communion at a Catholic church in South Carolina um, because of his stance on abortion. Right. So Father Robert Morey wrote in a statement that he had to refuse Holy Communion to Mr. Biden because a public figure who advocates for abortion places himself or herself outside church teaching. And so, yeah, so this could have been a quiet event, but a little paper there interviewed this priest and he made this statement. And so it became a pretty big national news story. Yeah, I think people are in general, like fascinated by the idea of a very public figure um, being denied uh a sacrament from his church in a very public, what became a very public way. Right. And then Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York also jumped in during an interview with Fox News. He said that while the priest made a good point, he himself would not have withheld communion from Biden or other politicians who take positions that might be at odd with church teaching. Yeah. So some of the background on this, um, Vice President Biden has, you know, he has described himself as a faithful Catholic who 
you know, is personally pro-life, but has he for a long time now, he's, you know, taken pro-choice positions and has gone even further in the past year, um, reversing his position on the Hyde Amendment, which restricts federal funding for abortion. He now says that he does support federal funding for abortion. So this is, you know, it is a blatant break with church teaching. Um, and that's why this priest felt the need to deny him communion. And it brought up a lot of questions for a lot of people. Um, so like, when is it ever appropriate for a priest to deny the Eucharist to a- anyone, but also a public figure? So according to canon law, priests are able to deny communion to people who have been excommunicated or to people who are persevering in manifest grave sin. Right. But as you know, so as Cardinal Dolan said, he personally wouldn't do this. He would rather talk to a public figure in a one on one setting and, you know, remind them what church teaching is. Um, And bishops are given a lot of leeway um, by canon law to decide when they are going to impose this penalty. So what do you guys think about this? Do you think it's okay to ever deny communion? In a certain sense, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a bishop. So it doesn't I, I kind of feel like it doesn't matter what I think. I would say no, I would. I mean, I don't think that's it. Cre- it's created such a scandal that is to detracted from what is inherently a pastoral issue, right? right. So this needs to be a relation, like a conversation between Joe Biden and his pastor, and, and instead has become it's on every podcast where people are giving their own two cents about whether or not Joe Biden is worthy enough to receive communion. Right, which right. I don't think is great. And I find that it feels a little counterproductive because you're not going to change Joe Biden's mind by denying him communion. So I, I don't see what the point of doing this would be. But again, like Zach mentioned, I'm not a pastor, so I don't have the ultimate say in this. But I just feel like, no, like, this shouldn't be done. What do you think, Ashley? Yeah, there's there's a part of me that like does that understands this impulse that like we need to sometimes a line has to be drawn. And like if someone has has publicly supported abortion in this way, like, you know, there could be people in the pews who are scandalized by seeing them get communion. But the much stronger part of me is, you know, with Team Pope Francis, which who has said that, you know, communion is not a prize for the perfect, but medicine for sinners, which is all of us. And it's just it is hard for me to, like, see what good can come of denying people um, the Eucharist and you know, thinking back to Jesus and all the sinners he sat at table with, I feel like he'd be okay with it, too. What's our next story, Ashley? So it's more uh, political action. Marco Rubio was at the Catholic University of America. We're recording on Tuesday. So today giving a speech um, calling for a common good capitalism. And he kind of challenged his own Republican Party to be more supportive of workers' rights. Senator Rubio brought up uh, Rerum Novarum, which is the 1891 social encyclical written by the Pope Leo XIII, um, which is sort of a lot of people cite as the foundation of modern Catholic social teaching. Right. And like the, the reason this is kind of making news is for a while now, the, the GOP has kind of been associated or, you know, not kind of, has been a supportive of a more libertarian economic system that does not necessarily support, you know, minimum wage laws or unions or the things that we associate with workers' rights. And, you know, granted, Senator Rubio did not explicitly call for those things, but it does mark a shift within the Republican Party to have someone, you know, who's a prominent public figure, you know, bringing Catholic social teaching into his political speech. Right. And while I do not align politically with most of Rubio's politics. I do appreciate the effort because we've talked about this on the on the podcast before, the need for Republicans and all all politicians to hold themselves and their party accountable. So I really appreciated his effort, you know? 
Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I don't know. I was more skeptical, again, as Ashley mentioned. No mention of raising the minimum wage. No mention of uh, proposing, like, just tax laws that are recommended by Catholic social ethicists and people who are studying this stuff regularly. So um, I would say I'm not convinced yet, um, but I don't know. This hopefully could be the start of something new. <laughs> it could be. And a couple of years ago, he did come out in favor of a more robust and earned income tax credit and, you know, support for working families. Um, so Which is always there's a useful little bit of meat on the bones. The ta- that earned income tax credit that comes once a year is super useful to people paying month to month bills. All right. Well, as we <laughs> as you'll see, if you listen to our interview, there are different currents within the conservative thought. And some of them are coming around to a more robust support for working people. Yeah. Populist message. So. Yeah. Stay tuned for more on that <laughs> with our interview with Matt Sidman. What's our next story, Zach? Our next story is that seven Catholic peace activists were convicted for their anti-nuclear protests last year. Um, a group known as the Plowshare 7 uh, broke into Kings Bay Naval w- Base, which is where several nuclear weapons are housed, and they used hammers to deface a monument uh, to the Trident missile. Uh, they poured out bottles of their own blood and left a sign that read, the ultimate logic of Trident, which is this missile, is omnicide, the death of all. So they were convicted on charges of conspiracy, destruction of government property, and trespassing. And the defendants say that they were following the command of the biblical prophet Isaiah to beat swords into plowshares. Right. And so they haven't been sentenced yet, um, but they could face over 20 years in prison. Uh, and a number of these people are you know, over 70 years old. And so if they were sentenced to the maximum, they, they would spend the rest of their life in prison, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that's putting your body on the line for... Yeah. It's fun. I This story did not get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just made me think about what makes a sort of protest stick as sort of like a legend. Like I think of the anti-Vietnam Catholic protesters like Daniel Berrigan Mm -hmm. and and what they did sort of kind of lives on in infamy. And it's not that different than what this group did too. In fact, they um, explicitly linked themselves to Berrigan and his Mm -hmm. legacy of protests. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think... I think this is kind of like a generational issue where people who grew up in the Cold War era and, you know, were hiding under their desks because of nuclear drills mm-hmm. um, do are can viscerally understand how just the mere existence of nuclear weapons is an existential threat to humanity and the planet in a way that, like, I just don't feel like I think for our generation, like climate change has kind of replaced nuclear weapons mm-hmm. as like the mm-hmm. big concern. And you can only you can only be so worried about so many things at once right right and i i also wonder if it's i feel like the peace movement in a lot of ways was gutted after everyone protest literally everyone protested the iraq war um and it really meant nothing and so i wonder if there was sort of this like nihilism that's infected a lot of people who are younger than this generation um i think we should be paying more attention to it i think this is so metal and so uh, worthy of admiration that people are willing to risk the the golden years of their lives. Yeah. And I think Pope Francis is calling for that same thing. Like he has made uh, nuclear disarmament a pretty, you know, prominent part of his papacy. He's come out and said that um, the like the theory of nuclear deterrence, having weapons to prevent other people from using their weapons is like not morally acceptable. 
um, which is a shift in how the church looks at that. Um, and he's visiting Japan at the end of the month and will actually give a speech at the site where one of the nuclear bombs was dropped. So he is he's certainly trying to prevent us from falling into nihilism and to keep this as like a, you know, important moral issue. Yeah. So th- they have not been sentenced yet. So it's not for sure that they will spend up to 20 years in prison. So we will be watching this case and we'll update you when we have more developments. What's our last story, Olga? So our next story comes out of Phoenix, Arizona, where a Catholic church hosted its first sensory-friendly mass this past weekend. Yeah, this started after a priest for the Diocese of Phoenix asked a a mother in his parish whose nine-year-old child has Down syndrome and autism about the religious education. And she had said that uh, two of my kids go to religious education, uh, but my middle child, um, I'm leaving at home because, and I thought this was a really powerful quote, there really wasn't a place for my little Mariah. And it wasn't the fault of anyone. There's no protocol, no procedure for children who are nonverbal. No one said she couldn't be there, but no one said yes. Yeah, I was really struck by that as well. Like the the welcoming is so much more than like having like ramps for people in wheelchairs. It's like it is you need to reach out. Jesus did not wait for people, the crippled or the lame to come to him. He went to them. Right. And churches, you know, I understand that like resources are off often stretched thin, but like, it's not okay to, you know, keep a nine-year-old girl from doing religious education just because it's, you know, expensive. Right. And you haven't set up the, and, and it's a matter of what are, what, where are our priorities mm-hmm. and where would Jesus want our priorities to be? And so the priest, after finding out about this, um, he hired a special needs religious educator in 2018 and worked to set up the century friendly masses, which debuted this past weekend. Right. And these masses are going to feature softer music, lower lighting and a shorter and more literal and direct homily. Yeah. And I was I thought this was just such a no brainer and such a great idea. Um, So I did a little Googling to see if there were other sensory friendly Mm -hmm. masses and maybe parishes are calling them something different. Um, But I found maybe a couple where this had happened around the country, but not a lot. And there's obviously this need for it. And I I think it goes back to what we were saying. Right. There's this um, it's important to intentionally go out and find people, right? Like, it's not enough to say that everyone is welcome if you're not going to create the spaces for everyone to feel welcome. Joining us in studio today is Matthew Sittman, an associate editor at Commonweal and one of the hosts of Know Your Enemy. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to talk to you. So our first question, what is Know Your Enemy? Well, Know Your Enemy is a podcast about the modern American conservative movement and the American right. It's historical sometimes where we uh, will look at, say, you know, the founding of National Review in the 1950s and the intellectuals that wrote for them and were on their staff and the debates and arguments they had and the ideas they put forward. Uh, sometimes we'll do something more contemporary. Like we recently have done an episode on what we called the illiberal right, meaning some of the things going on at first things, the Soa Bamari, David French debate, the new nationalism that's emerging. We did an episode on the national conservatism conference that was held in DC. And a lot of these July. things maybe to like quote unquote normal people are yeah. like going to mean maybe not a lot, but like these are the intra right debates that are happening sort of. And you think those are important to pay attention to. Right. Yes. Uh, and so Sam and I, my co-host, Sam Adler-Bell, we're both died in the wool leftists. So partly this is the left looking at the right and also looking at what 
the left can learn from the right. Because whatever you make of the ideology of conservatism, it's true that they were a kind of band of dissenting intellectuals who were more on the margins of American culture, society, and politics, who then achieved political power. The kind of move from National Review being founded in the 1950s through Ronald Reagan's election, the rise of the religious right, and kind of even some of the forces we still see with us now. Yeah. So as someone who kind of leans a little more conservative, I have to say I was a little bit off put by the title of the podcast at first. Like, oh, I'm Uh the enemy. Interesting. But I have to say I was like pleasantly surprised when listening to it because this is not about demonizing the right. It really is about understanding them on their own terms. Yes, totally. In fact, you know, we've gotten a lot of, can I swear on here? No. no. Okay. I almost said <laughs> the S word. Um, uh, how should I put it? Yes, we've gotten some concerned uh, possible criticisms about the name, but it's very tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of nods to some of what's going on on the right right now, which is the embrace of Carl Schmitt, the German, well, Nazi jurist and, and political philosopher. Catholic, the, to, we Catholic, should say. Yes, a bad Catholic, yeah. uh, I think, anyway. <laughs> Uh, who made a lot of the friend-enemy distinction, the, 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 mm-hmm. the fundamental units of politics in a way with friends and enemies. And so we're playing with that, too. It's a little bit ironic. Uh, but we do try to take conservatives on their own terms to understand their ideas in a good faith way before we launch into our evaluation of them or our criticism. Have you them. heard from conservative listeners or are most of your listeners on the left? I would say most of our listeners are on the left, but I think a fair number of conservatives kind of secretly listen in. <laughs> now, I often think there's there's know your enemy is very close to sort of Jesus's command to love your enemy, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Is there a connection at all, like a spiritual impulse to, as you said, understand them on their own terms? And is that missing in a lot of the discourse you're seeing other, um, other places? You know, I've used that joke on the show before that, you know, if, when we get these people questioning the title who are concerned about what it might imply, I say... You know, just because you're my enemy doesn't mean I'm not commanded to love you. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know. It's something I'm committed to as a writer and thinker to at least try to understand the people I disagree with in a good faith way. And what happens from there, of course, you know, it it, it depends. But that initial impulse, I do think, is a properly Christian one. (laughs) And shifting a little bit to present day, I think President Trump, uh, whatever you think about him, has blown up a lot of people's political categories. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also looking at sort of the history of the conservative movement. How, so mm-hmm. how does, is the president sort of looming large in the background of all your discussions? He really is. And one of the questions we take up a lot in different guises on the podcast is to what extent Trump is in continuity or discontinuity with what you might think of as the classic fusionist National Review conservatism uh, that you would associate with people like Bill Buckley or Ronald Reagan. And by fusionist, I mean the marriage of traditional values, more libertarian economics, and then during the Cold War, a kind of strong anti-communism. And after the Cold War, maybe George W. Bush's more aggressive foreign policy. So that mix was kind of what we thought conservatism was. Trump comes on the scene talking about trade wars, about uh, American workers being ripped off by China and Mexico, complaining about immigration, complaining might be a <laughs> slightly euphemistic word there. Um, and, and during the Republican primaries, there are two things he said that were fascinating for me. One was the debate in South Carolina when he said, uh, you know, Bush was president on 
he didn't keep us safe. And that just made people's heads explode. Yeah. And then there was another moment during the primary where he said, you know, it's called the Republican Party, not the conservative party. So he broke with some of traditional conservatism as it was formulated in the post-war era in the United States. But in other ways, you know, you can't divorce the history of conservatism from massive resistance and backlash to the civil rights movement. Um, I mean, Ronald Reagan began his campaign for president in Mississippi at a site where civil rights workers were murdered. Um, the, the language of welfare queens is racially coded. You know, a lot of the language of, around welfare independency was, and, and crime were racially coded. So in some ways, Trump, his explicit ideology was different, but the popular energies he was riding to power, I think, were a, a part of a backlash that we've seen over the last 40 or 50 years in American political history. So in some ways, he was in discontinuity. In other ways, he was in continuity. And so that those kind of complicated questions are a major theme of the show that we end up eventually circling back to in most episodes. So, Matthew, can you go a little bit into more detail? What is happening to Catholic political conservatives in the Trump era? Well, there's a lot of different things going on. The way I like to think about it is, you know, on the one hand, you have the integralists who we might have heard of, uh, people who, well, as the, as the term integralist indicates, kind of integrating church and state in some ways. And maybe a simple definition would be that the temporal power should be subordinate to the spiritual power. How um, serious do you take them? Like, do you, is that just like a small Twitter community that like have found each other and are kind of like playing around with these ideas? Or is that yes, like a serious I, impulse within the well, Catholic church in the U.S.? Well, that's a very good question. I think it is for the most part a relatively small group of Twitter users. But when one of them is someone like Adrian Vermeule, who's a Harvard law professor and uh, very intelligent, you know, writes cogently and forcefully yeah. about some of these matters, I think the ideas might be spreading. It gives a respectability spreading. to it. It gives it respectability and it, you know, spreads maybe beyond or has the potential to spread beyond where it's at now. But that's just one strain. You have the nationalism that I mentioned, the kind of conservative nationalism uh, that people like. A lot of the people at First Things right now are connected to that and advocating for that. You have people like Patrick Deneen, who I don't think would be comfortable labeling himself a nationalist, but who are severe critics of liberalism, uh, meaning liberalism is the political philosophy, you know, separation of powers, rule of law, constitutionalism, things like that. And at Notre Dame, so well within the mainstream of... Yes. And his book, Why Liberalism Failed, was on President Obama's reading list last summer. So you have a mix of things going on on the right integralists, nationalists, critics of liberalism. And I think the best way to understand it is that they're all kind of, they rhyme with each other. They're not identical. There are things they split over. I think integralists, for the most part, are very good on immigration because they're not attached to the nation state. They're, they worship... Um, good as in they're, they want more immigrants. or Right. They, they don't have that uh, xenophobic strain in them. You know, they are loyal to the Pope, not the flag. And so whatever else you might say about them, you know, they disagree with the nationalists on questions of immigration, race, ethnicity, I would say. But what it amounts to is, I think, a bit of an intellectual scaffolding for something like Trumpism. You know, uh, whatever the differences among them, that is the impulse that I think unites them in a way, is that they're willing to look at a guy like Trump and see him as a wrecking ball that they can make use of. Or they look at someone like Viktor Orban in Hungary, or they look at what's going on in Poland, and they say, 
I like what I like what I see or they're willing to tolerate it. So you mentioned that you do hope that these conversations are a way that the left can learn from the right. Mm -hmm. Um, So what have you learned um, from conservatism? conservatism that either not only that is like helpful to in your own political battles but you know maybe changed your mind or changed the way you saw uh people on the other side or where you saw room for common ground yeah that's a really good question and i i do have sort of a three-pronged answer if i may one would be at a personal level there was a lot of conservatives i knew a guy like patrick deneen who was a teacher of mine at georgetown who, who i loved and still love i still consider him a friend And he was just, there was this conservative instinct to like build community that he had. And he was the professor who would get a beer with you after a seminar and would have you over to his house for dinner and really cared for his students. And of course, you don't have to be a conservative to do that, but it was an extension of his communitarian values in a way. And I think I learned something about hospitality and how to treat people from some of my conservative mentors. I would say, too, one reason I, it took me a while, I think, to move left was during the years I was in academia as a PhD student and, and teaching some, too. I felt like in the context of academia, I still had some conservative instincts. My posture toward great books or, you know, some of how we talked about you know, what a curriculum should be like and what books you should read. And, you know, I don't, I think there's some on the left who have too dismissive of an attitude towards the past. And, you know, kind of use, you know, the West and scare quotes, which I, I get, but also I think sometimes it's a bit too dismissive. So that's one thing. Um, and I would say, too, to bring it to a more contemporary place politically, I still have a conservative instinct in me in the sense that I think any time you fight for big change, there's going to be side effects you didn't anticipate. And that's kind of a conservative instinct and insight into way the way society and politics works. So if you're going to fight for big change, you should do it with, I don't mean this to sound contradictory, but with enough humility to know that it's not going to be cost-free, that all good things don't go together sometimes. And if you fight for this, there's going to be some trade-off that you have to make or just some trade-off you don't anticipate. And so I think the way I, I view social change and how political change happens I still have that little conservative voice in the back of my head saying, you know, there's going to be parts of this that aren't going to go like you think they do. And you should be aware of that as you think about how how to push for that change and when you plan for what it might look like. Do you have plans to have conservatives on the podcast? Very good question. I would like that very much. Um, I would love to have Pat Deneen on. I would love to have my old friend Andrew Sullivan on. There's a lot of people I that are conservatives that I still consider friends. And that I would love to have just like, you know, like this, pour yourself a drink and have an in-depth conversation where you're not trying to score points, but you're actually having a real dialogue and, and trying to understand the other person and tease out ideas that way. Cause I, do you ever worry that there's like a risk that someone's missing from the conversation? Um, talking about someone. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a risk, but I, again, I think we, we do a pretty good job of being fair-minded, um, but I do think there'll come a time when we want to mix it up some and actually have some conservatives on if they if they would be willing to, to do that. <laughs> I, for one, would love that. <laughs> <laughs> if we could shift a little bit to your own background. You mentioned yourself as a, a dyed-in-the-wool leftist, but yeah. you've not always been 
that way. And sort of what brings, I think, a little bit of credibility to you as a sort of a interpreter of the right, as you yourself were a conservative for a long time, correct? Yes. Um, certainly in college and in grad school. So I would say a lot of my 20s. Um, by the time I was getting toward the end of my 20s, I I don't know what I would have called myself. I was in a in-between space. And I think there were a lot of us during, say, the Obama years who liked Obama. Um, we liked him because he had some conservative instincts. And you know, I just didn't feel like there was a label that really fit me during that period of time. So my conversion didn't happen. My political conversion didn't happen overnight, but I was very involved in the conservative movement, especially, especially the kind of intellectual components of it, the programs they had for helping graduate students, the, the weekend seminars you could attend where you would be schooled in the books and history and arguments and ideas of conservatism. So that was where my real intellectual training happened. And the story of how I moved away from that is a kind of long and complicated one, but which I have written about. Do you do you remember your moment of like first political consciousness that like sort of what attracted you to that ideology? Was it simply where you grew up or who taught you first or? Yeah. You know, I like to use the line of Pat Buchanan's of all of all people mm -hmm. that he uses a line called the conservatism of the heart. So what I, I didn't grow up in a very intellectual household. It was a very working class uh, home I grew up in. So my conservatism was based on kind of patriotism, traditional moral values, a sense of upward mobility that my parents didn't go to college, but I would. And the, you know, that would mean something for my life trajectory. Um, and then when I went to college, I would say I figured out how to argue for those things in a more intellectual way. And so it was taking my instincts and draping them in ideas. And so I don't know how to answer your question exactly. I was never, I was involved in like college Republicans in high school or in, in college, but I didn't, electoral politics were never my main thing. Mm. And so there was never a candidate that I was super excited about. Um, there was never a campaign I was really involved with. It was much more on the, especially by the time I was, you know, moving through college, I was much more interested in the books and ideas of conservatism than what was going on in the Republican Party. I think what? a lot of people can relate to that, especially mm -hmm. yeah. as they move through their college years. Yeah. yeah. What was yeah. it like for you to talk with your family or your parents as you were kind of going through this change in your life? That's an interesting question. We didn't talk about it that much. My parents know where I stand now politically. Um, and it's interesting to talk with them. I mean, both of my parents voted for Trump. Um, they know I'm a Bernie bro. <laughs> uh, but it's it's but it's interesting because because it is a working class part of cent it's central Pennsylvania where I grew up. I think the county I grew up in went maybe seventy two percent for Trump, so very kind of Trumpy area. Um, but like my mom, kind of liked what Bernie would say about healthcare, especially because my grandmother, who has Alzheimer's, is in hospice care, and my mom's the one filling out the paperwork and helping my grandfather pay the bills, and so she knows how devastating medical bills and, and medical care can be. So I don't know, there's surprising connections sometimes that uh, exist w within my family, mm -hmm. even a, a, across these political divides. And with your, with your background growing up conservative and, you know, still having people that you love that are Trump supporters, mm -hmm. what, what can, what do you say to people who are on the left about how they see conservative? Like what are the big misunderstandings in the way either people on the left or the media covers conservatism 
Well, that's a that's a big question, actually. Mm-hmm. One answer I would give is that I I make a distinction between people who voted for Trump and some of the intellectuals and more powerful people who really back him and support him. So after the 2016 election, there was a, a lot of sentiment that I read and heard and saw where people would say, oh, you know, those people in Ohio, those people in Michigan, those people in Pennsylvania who voted for Trump, to hell with them, right? Like, oh, so they're going to screw up their health care? Fine, let them rot. And I never took that attitude uh, because even in states that went for Trump, there are African-Americans, there are migrants and immigrants, there are LGBT people. So I'm not willing to consign any anyone to kind of, you know, uh, misery because they happen to live in a red state. As if everyone has the privilege to leave a red state if they wanted to. Yes, yes. So I make that distinction between people who might have voted for Trump and some of the people who more consciously supported him and argued and, and debated for him. Um in terms of misconceptions, I, that's, that's a tough question to answer. I do think there are stereotypes on the left and the right that, that they have of each other. But, you know, I recently had a conversation on Know Your Enemy with a guy named Max Alvarez, who grew up, um, uh, he's a Latino guy, grew up in LA, very working class, but grew up very conservative. And we talked a lot about the kind of self-help ethos that working class conservatives tend to have, meaning the world is hostile to your self-interest. The world is arrayed against you. So you got to look out for yourself. And, and you your should, family you, and your the ones around you. And yeah. The ones, yeah, your family and the ones around you. So you have to work hard. You have to clean your act up. You got to get your life in order. And it is this kind of bootstrap, individualistic message that I reject because I don't think everyone who's poor, everyone who suffers, everyone who struggles isn't trying, right? Or is it's just because they haven't followed this self-help path. But what I would say is that sometimes those views do make sense on an individual level, right? You wouldn't give advice to your friend where you say, oh, you should really get into drugs, right? Or you shouldn't work hard or, you know, don't worry about getting an education. You wouldn't give that advice to anyone. So I think some of the conservative impulse there can be good advice. And the problem is when it gets built into an ideology that says, Everyone who's, again, sick or struggling or poor has brought it upon themselves. That's the bad part, again, when it's teased out into a more systematic approach to these questions. So I think there are things like that you can point to where uh, when you really drill down into the particulars of, of people's lives, a more conservative instinct makes sense sometimes. So, Matt, you're also a, a convert to Catholicism. Now, did yeah. this conversion happen at the same time as your sort of political conversion was happening? Not really. Um, my reception into the church started many years ago. I mean, it happened in the last four or five years, formally. But I was a grad student at Georgetown, and I met a lot of smart Jesuits. I <laughs> guess I should give them a shout out here. <laughs> F- Father Fields, I still love you. Um, you know, so I be, well, let me just take a step back. I grew up fundamentalist Baptist, like the kind of self-described fundamentalist. It's not my pejorative. And it was deeply anti-Catholic. So despite being very drawn to the church in a lot of ways, I, it was a, a big kind of existential hump to get over to actually do it. And I, I mentioned I was a grad student at Georgetown, so that's when a lot of this started. 
Uh, but then I lived in Virginia for five years. I, I taught some at UVA. I, I did some graduate work uh, during that time. And I went to an Episcopal church that I really loved. It was really a wonderful church community. But then when I moved to New York, I was uprooted from that community. And I kind of didn't know what to do. But one night, I realized if I got some terrible diagnosis that I was going to die in six months, the very first thing I would do is go become Catholic and make sure a priest <laughs> gave me last rites as I was dying. And I, and, and, but in a very real sense, you know, this is Socrates, like philosophy is the practice of death. Like, what would you do in light of your, you know, dying? That should determine, help you determine some of your choices while you're living. And I realized I just had to, you know, take the plunge. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's the very that's short, the, short, short, very, very yeah. short version. I guess, there, are, there are intellectual reasons or sure. arguments I had with myself, but we, you know, that's the At, one version. That's like when it came down to it. Yeah. You wanted to. The, how does your faith inform your politics today? Maybe those didn't happen at the same time, but they're in conversation today, I would yeah. imagine. Well, you know, for one thing, I do think of Pope Francis in many ways as the antidote to the nationalism and hatred of migrants and immigrants we see. And like, he's the counterpoint. He's the anti-Trump. Wait, and so they, they're not the same? Right. <laughs> Zach, you're going to make me I know. be but mean to people. Populist. I know how to push, yes. your, I know how to push um, your buttons. Yeah. So just to say, you know, all these people, Ross that Rod Dreher, Matt Schmitz, who wrote these pieces saying that uh, Pope Francis and Donald Trump actually had a lot in common. I mean, I really wish I could swear right now, but I can't. <laughs> so I'll just say it really, really made me mad. And I wrote about it at the time. Um, but so someone like Francis, I take a lot of inspiration from, but generally Catholic social teaching, I have found very congenial to a lot of my views. And, you know, when I'm talking to more secular leftist friends, they're often impressed by this body of teaching that in a lot of ways is, I don't know if you'd call it progressive, but at least on economic matters and things like unions and workers' rights has a lot to offer the world right now. And I think ways- in some ways it needs to be updated, but... Um, yes. So I, I, I found my faith and my political views to be mutually reinforcing over the last few years. And, I, and the parish I, I go to has been a very progressive parish in a lot of ways. Um, and there's a lot of talk of how you treat the least among us. And, you know, the other is your brother and sister and things like that. So shifting back to know your enemies, mm-hmm. you work at Commonweal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Is that the yes. real reason you came to get some intel on your, your yeah. enemies at America? Yeah. Uh-huh. No, we do not see you as enemies or even competitors. Some we... of my best friends work at America. <laughs> <laughs> but no, can you can you tell us a little bit about Commonweal, its place in the Catholic media environment? Um, yeah. And what you do there. Sure. So I'm associate editor there. And at Commonweal, that means I'm one of the main three or four editors who commissions pieces, edits them, is responsible for getting the magazine out the door. But we're a 95-year-old liberal Catholic magazine, and liberal in the sense of the most expansive sense of the word, not the contemporary partisan sense of the term exactly. Because one of the first debates we had at Commonweal, this is in the 1920s, 30s, was whether to back Franco during the Spanish Civil War. And we were the only Catholic publication, I believe, to stay neutral 
Sweet. Mm. So we didn't, you know, it might seem like cowardice, but actually it was a lot more than uh, a lot of Catholics did at the time. But that's just to say that liberal in the sense of the relationship between Catholicism and liberal democracy, which, you know, when Commonwealth was founded, was not uh, a very settled question. It was still in flux. And whether Catholics would you know, be on the side of liberal democracy or not was an open question. So Commonwealth's always had a, a concern for religion and politics and culture. We're a pretty intellectual magazine, and I hate to use that word, but a lot of academics write for us. We still run a lot of book reviews. Um, we have pretty in-depth articles. And we are, I would say, pretty decisively a left-of-center magazine politically. So you mentioned that you guys are 95-year-old organization, and I think we're associate editors at America. And one of the things we're always thinking about is what the future looks like for people in Catholic media. So mm-hmm. what would you say is the future of Commonweal in the 21st century? That's a really interesting question. One way I think about it is that in a lot of ways, Commonweal reached its high watermark in the years after Vatican II. And Commonweal did a lot of explaining of Vatican II to an American audience. So when it comes to things like circulation numbers and subscribers, and those were the high watermark for us. And that generation of Catholic is still donating to us, still subscribing, still probably the, the core of our our, our subscriber and donor base. And so, you know, what are young people willing to subscribe to a magazine? Are they willing to cough up money? In what way will the new generation support us? Those are questions in the mix. But I would say too, you know, the generation, that generation, kind of boomer Catholics and maybe slightly older. They, are we allowed to say boomer on the air now? <laughs> I, I, I was not referencing the, whatever the okay, that boomer. okay boomer meme is. I don't, I just, it's appeared on Twitter. I don't know where it originated. Um, but, you know, that generation was very comfortable talking about like birth control uh, and, and abortion. They fought those issues out. They're less comfortable talking about trans people and, and, and gay people and same-sex marriage and those kinds of questions. I, in my experience, there's just a little bit more of a pulling back. And so the, the, the issues that younger people are wrestling with, I think one way forward for Commonweal is to lean into them. And because we're late edited, air arguments and debates, not necessarily even just pick one side, but have people who are committed to the church and, and wrestling with their Catholic faith, have them weigh in on these issues in a way that connects with people who are younger and the, the, the arguments and debates they're having amongst their friends and family and loved ones. I, I love Commonweal. I'm ready to devour the book's issues that just hit my mailbox. Nice. So congrats on that. We have one final question for you. Sure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we ask all of our guests this. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Um, that's an interesting question. My Catholic grandmother. Tell us why. What was her name? Uh, her name was Christine. Everyone called her Teeny. Fiery Italian lady. Um, and she was just a very good person. And, you know, baked and cooked hundreds of funeral dinners at her parish over the years. Weekly mass goer. Um, and in a lot of ways, I feel like my being received in the church was kind of coming home because she she kept the faith in a way. And, um, you know, 
every priest I've ever talked to said she was praying for you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I know, I know the priest. <laughs> yeah. I know you're going to tell me that. But I do believe it in some sense. And she was just a very good person and someone I loved a lot. And in her last years, when I'd go over and have coffee with her, we talked a lot about faith. So she's someone very important to me. And uh, I think, you know, She's, she should be the patron saint of Catholic grandmas. Mm-hmm. Saint Teeny. Saint Teeny. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, again, so uh, where can people find your work? Uh, at Commonweal. Um, you can look up Know Your Enemy, the podcast. Um, we're out on all the usual channels, iTunes, um, uh, what's called? Spotify. Uh, Spotify, all those places. Um, and we have a Twitter handle too, uh, at KnowYREnemyPod. And... I write for Dissent, too. So the essay, I think you kind of alluded to, yes. uh, called Leaving Conservatism Behind, that was published there. So you can look me up in Commonweal, in Dissent, and then Know Your Enemy is really easy to find, too. Yeah, we'll put awesome. all these in our show notes. Great. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Thank Matt. you. Now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to welcome a new supporter on Patreon, Melissa Marchese. If you don't know yet, you can go to patreon.com slash American Media um, to support the work we do here on Jesuitical. Right. And you're going to get, I think I'm up on newsletter this week. Is that correct? That is yeah. Correct. So we have a news, uh, Patreon exclusive newsletter. Um, so I will be sending you all of my honeymoon photos. Fo- I'm kidding. That's not <laughs> what I'm going to be doing. Um, but you can sign up now at patreon.com slash America Media. And... In very exciting news, we hit 500 reviews on iTunes. So that's great. It helps other people find the show. Um, So maybe you are a Gen Zer and have never looked at Apple Podcasts and you only listen to the show on Spotify. But wherever you get your podcasts, if you rate and review us, it helps other people find the show. So please do it. Um, You can do it on your phone right now. It's stupid easy. So uh, (laughs) thank you, everyone who's left the 500 reviews. And we look forward to seeing more. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a desolation this week. Um, my fiance Enoch recently, he's starting a new job. He, while we were in Portugal uh, for my 30th birthday, he actually got two job offers and took one of them by the time we came back. And I've been really excited for him. It's a great move professionally. But then there's this voice in the back of my head that's just that keeps comparing my own professional life to his. And it's kind of like I'm really happy for him, but it's also put me in this really negative space where I just keep thinking, oh, my God, I need to do more or I need to make more money or I need to do all of these things. And one, it's not allowing me to think about myself in the context of my own experience and my own life. And two, it's getting in the way, this voice is getting in the way of me being happy for the person that I love because I'm just thinking, well, what should I be doing? What should my life look like in the next few months? Um, And it's just been really desolating to have to deal with that this week. It's always super tough to, when you know, and you are, you should be happy for someone, but there's like your own stuff going on. Right, right. That's super relatable. What do you have, Ashley? I have a consolation. Um, So this past weekend, uh, I had a girls weekend weekend. 
well, girls weekend plus my little brother Tombo <laughs> crashed the party. <laughs> um, so my mom and my sisters and my brother um, all came to visit me in New York to help me get settled in my new apartment. And then my, um, I had a nanny growing up. So, so by, from the t- age I was two to 11, um, she was basically like my second mom. Uh, she lived with us um, and was really there for me. And now she lives on Long Island. So she came out to meet us all for brunch on Saturday. I've seen her a few times since living in New York and just developing this new kind of relationship where it's like we're more like peers or friends Mm. than like, you know, I'm not 10 years old anymore. Um, And so she was able to talk about um, how hard it was for her when she came to us when she was 23. She had we didn't have Skype then. She had a phone call interview with my parents and left her huge family in Michigan and moved to Virginia and lived with us. Um, And she talked about how scary that was, but then also how like how hard it was to leave and how it was like leaving kids and like it was a difficult conversation but it was I was really it just made me all the more grateful that like this person was in my life and you know how sometimes you know it takes a lot of courage to like to love people like and she didn't know that love was going to be on the other end of this like scary leap of faith she made but she said explicitly like that she thought God had brought her to our family um so I was just like overwhelmed with gratitude for this, for the, her openness and sharing that and for her courage, you know, 20 years ago and mm-hmm. making that leap of faith. Um, so it was just like a really wonderful experience to have that with all the women in my family. And how cool like to be, I don't know, this is the best part about growing older, right? Like yeah. you get to like figure out that all the adults are revered are just real people. Oh, yeah. And yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you have, Zach? Uh, I have a consolation weird i know uh be really bad if you didn't (laughs) (laughs) no pressure um so consolation uh i got married uh (laughs) let me say 10 out of 10 would recommend marriage (laughs) um i don't know the day is just getting married was just this incredible experience of like really there's a deep peace in making this lifelong commitment to a person um, in front of God and all your favorite people and other people tried to prepare me who had gone through this that like this is such an incredible experience to just like look around and see all of the people that have supported you and your spouse in your life and they're here to support you today and for the rest of your life and in fact Eric Sundrup uh, who helps us with our consolations and desolations he he married us so he preached the homily at our wedding and he's and he explicitly made us look around and look at people in the face at our wedding and saw and we could see all of the people there. And that was just after he called me a moron in the homily. <laughs> um, but great. it's just an over, like it's an overwhelming experience of God's love where it's been in your life, where it is today and where it's going to be. Um, that has just spilled over into the honeymoon and into real life. And that's sort of just like consolation on steroids. And that was, and I love it. I don't know. Love being married. Love the wedding. Love that a, you guys were there. It was an amazing wedding. Seriously, when, I mean, I love that I got to see you get married, but when I saw Amanda like walked on the aisle, I was just completely blown away. Like you guys were both just so Same. gorgeous and so in love. <laughs> no. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was so cool to have my uh, podcasters and fro workers there. Fro workers is what I call friend, co workers, <laughs> listener. Um, so thank you guys for supporting me. And uh, we will be counting on you to support us into the marriage. So well. be prepared. <laughs> All right, Ashley, get us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundro. Production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.